morning. If you would, start turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29 as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. If, you know, I don't know you, my name is Vince Hoppy. I'm the pastor here. And if you have any questions you want to know more about Grace of Peace Church, please ask me. I would love to talk to you about it. But we're turning now to Genesis, and we're going to be picking up the topic of romance today. You know, what does Genesis have to teach us about love and romance? Does that be interesting? Well, we'll find out that Jacob is quite modern, and we'll uh, see some awesome things here. So, Genesis chapter 29, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. I know it is many verses, but you're from Colorado, so you have to be somewhat healthy. Uh, at least go to sleep and breathe at six thousand feet. So, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. He looked, he saw a well in a field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. The stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. So which kids are right now saying, wait a second, what's up with all this kissing? That's a, you know, like a, uh, that, that great, um, you know, the princess bride. Like, what's up with all the kissing? And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob and his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced and kissed him and brought him to the house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what wages, uh, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, eh, It's better that I give her to you than, I, than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? 
Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then you deceive me? Laban said, Man, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and I will give you also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bela, to be the to be his daughter Rachel, or to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord, though, saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, for Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore his name is called Judah. Then she ceased bearing. You may be seated. The word of the Lord. Uh, there's a legend of sorts that goes along with the largest fire in Colorado history. It's the Hayden Fire. In 2002, Terry Bart was playing with possibly the most powerful element amongst humanity. I'm not talking about fire, I'm talking about romance. Terry Burton was a wildfire spotter and prevention technician for the U.S. Forest Service. But that didn't keep her from doing something stupid when it came to matters of the heart. She testifies that she was out northwest of Lake George with a letter from her estranged husband in a campground with a fire ring. She lit the estranged husband's letter in the fire ring, but the embers burned up, came out, and burned up a forest. 173 or 37,000 acres, 133 houses to the tune of 39 million dollars. In that letter, she held the pain of a failed romance and it burned in her heart long before it burned down the forest. Romance, the process of it, the feelings of it, the hurt has the power to make us soar or to burn us down. Not much in this world can make us jump for joy in one minute and crawl up in fetal position and hate our lives the next moment as much as romance does, does it? No. Turn on Spotify and tune to Ray, Ray LaMontagne and in consecutive songs you will hear him sing You are the best thing to ever happen to me. And then in the next song he will sing and sing out, I found myself face down in a ditch, booze on my hair, blood on my lips, a picture of you, holding a picture of me in the pocket of my blue jeans. Still don't know what love means. It's a breakup song. You know, and so here he goes from the height of heights where the best thing that ever happened to me, and then in the next song, I'm face down in a ditch. Like, that is the feeling that he's expressing here. And what do we know, and what we know from Terry Barton, what we know from Ray LaMontagne is this. 
Romance is powerful, isn't it? And in this time now, during COVID-19, we face a lot of uncertainty, loneliness, anxiety, and a lot of us look to romance, whether we are married or single or just even a kid, we look to romance to get us out of the mundane to save us in a way, right? We want to know that we're worthwhile, that we're wanted, that we're loved, that we're meaningful, we're desirable. And while romance can get us to soar to new heights, it can cause us to crumble in despair. With a stinking loneliness that is exacerbated through social isolation in COVID-19, do you know that the online dating app usage is up 15 to 20 percent? Calls are longer. 15 to 20%. This draw toward romantic love in this time displays the power of romance. Married couples spending more time with each other knows the pain and power of romance. With the great expectations that they hold toward themselves and their spouses, they find that maybe they think that they're not good enough for their spouse, or they realize that this spouse really just frustrates me, and I can't believe I ever married this person. But, we also find out whenever you are loved by your spouse or cared for, served, that is great, wonderful. Kids, you know that romance is powerful too. Why? Because whenever you see your parents don't have affection for each other, you're like, there's something wrong. And what do kids want to do? They want to fix up the romantic life of the parents. I grew up like this. I felt maybe somehow it was in my power to fix my parents' relationship. But that isn't true. Think about all the romance movies that we see. It is blockbuster hits, baby. We're talking Notting Hill, uh, You've Got Mail, uh, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, Love Actually. And then uh, think about the whole Hallmark genre. They're like, let's take a Christmas movie and overlay a romance on it, and boom, baby, we've got bucks, right? And so romance is powerful and it pays. They're thinking dollar bills. Or maybe think about the songs Dean Martin sings. You're nobody until somebody loves you. Think about the grandmas you avoid during weddings, especially if you are single. You avoid grandma like a plague. Why? Because she's going to sit next to you and say weird things like, one of these days is going to be your chance. As soon as you fix the way you look and smell bad and, and have no personality. As soon as you fix those things, it's going to be great. Thanks, Grandma. It's like I have to, you know, you feel like you have to plague if you're a single person at a wedding and Grandma's around, okay? And it has this power. It has the power to shame us, too. Romance makes us feel like who in the world could possibly love me want me, or notice me. We live in a world that would say that I lie with romance. And especially in Christianity, there's this expectation that you have to get married before you're 24. Otherwise, you might actually have to play. You know, and the way it looks is that all, your, all the Christian married friends are always trying to set up their unmarried Christian friends. And they're always thinking about it and doing it. And it's because we believe, in some sense, romance is going to give us something it wasn't designed to give us. A stability, meaning in the world, to make us feel full and happy and real. You know, 
we are asking romance to do for us what it wasn't designed to do. And that's save us, redeem us, make our lives worthwhile. And so while we know that romance is the best in the world, we also know it's the most beastly. Now, let's take a little bit of a break. Let's think about this, okay? We have in a world, in this world, we have conflated and confused intimacy, being known, and being really actually accepted and loved, you know, and so, and with being, being in a romantic relationship. And so many people believe that if they're actually going to be known, that they have to be romantically involved. And so that the only way to actually have a fulfilled life is to express yourself sexually and romantically in a relationship. The author of Genesis is going to put, push this a little bit. So why does the author of Genesis take us here to this story after Jacob's encounter with God of Bethel? Because although Jacob has the promises of God in his head, the love of God hasn't sunk into his heart. The Christian religion isn't just one of cognitive assent, knowing the rules and the reasons, but rather it is one of being moved and inspired by love. Moving and animating the whole life is what love is to do. Christianity is where head and heart, the whole person is swept up into the unfolding drama of God's redeeming plan for the world. That's why it says in the Shema, the, the most important verses in the entire Old Testament for many Hebrews, was that they were to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It wasn't past the little Hebrew text. It wasn't know these ten rules. It was love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Jacob's in conflict at this time. And what he needs most in his uncertainty and anxiety is to rise and have hope. Hope of redemption. But he looks for it in the romantic answer. He looks for it in being known by the romantic partner instead of being known by the Lord. For which we see and he sees that romance is powerful, but it's not everything. So today we're going to look at the allure of romance, the pain of romance, and the true romance. So the allure of romance. So romance has power, right? It draws you in like a flame draws a mob. It has the ability to cause you to say nonsensical things, do ridiculous and act out of character in many different ways. Notice it seems that Jacob is absolutely drawn to Rachel. It's a lot like having that fourth grade crush. You look over at that girl and you're like, hey, what's up? And she's a smart girl. So what do you do as a smart girl? You know, she's a smart girl. I am going to impress her with my grades. So suddenly, you are the standout students. And as any elementary school teacher knows, it works. It happens with kids. And suddenly, you know, a fourth grader has a crush of maybe the class clown. Then all of a sudden, they are, you know, making people laugh. And they're funny. It's weird. It makes you change. And so notice how Jacob is drawn to Rachel. First, in verse 10, and we notice that these sermons are kind of sub, uh, subversive. They're like, ah, eh, we don't do anything until everybody gets here. Jacob's like, you've got to water this flock. And then he notices Rachel. He's like, what's up, girl? And then, so, so what suddenly happens is that Jacob, this guy who lived in tents, and was a sophisticated man, and a man who was kind of soft, he probably went and got, you know, manicures and pedicures or whatever they do, and he dresses really nice, okay? Suddenly, he becomes this, like, hero figure. 
figure with massive muscles all of a sudden. He moves, moves this giant stone so Rachel can water her flocks. And how big is the stone? Traditionally, stones over wells at this time require the strength of three to four men. Jacob's like, nah, got this. So how in the world does this pen pusher, this keyboard typer, suddenly become this massive grizzled dude to push it over? It's the power of romance. He suddenly is different. Notice also then, whenever he realizes who Rachel is, this is Laban's daughter, he has arrived into a place of safety where his mom told him to go, and so suddenly he is saved by the potential romance of Rachel, and so what does he do? He kisses her in weeks, which has got to be like the weirdest thing ever, okay? I know you probably got the image of like, oh, it's, it's like the Pride and Prejudice scene with Kira Knightley at the end, where the light is coming over the hill, and you can see the mist of the dew, and she looks up and sees him, and he looks up and sees her, and oh my gosh, her heart explodes out of her chest. It's beautiful, isn't it? No. You know, he's just like, like crying and weeping. He's like, oh, I'm saved. Like, that is weird. But anyway, so Jacob is saved in this part. And so romance, in a certain sense, is giving him a way of redemption here. But in verse 17, the narrator tells us that Leah, there's Leah, it says uh, she had weak eyes or soft eyes. I do not know what that means. Some commentators are like, her eyes were not blazing like sapphires or something. I'm like, how in the world do you know? She could have had a lazy eye, I don't know. Like, and so commentators write all this weird stuff about her eyes. I'm like, man. You know, but it says this about Leah. It says that she was beautiful in form and appearance. And so it says it twice. It means Jacob was done for when it came to this woman. He was drawn to her. Notice then how he serves Rachel. He says this. He gives an extraordinary bride price. Ladies are like, what are you going to do for me? And he says, uh, give me, uh, he says, like, Jacob says, like, yeah, give me your daughter. He's like, well, for how much? He's like, and Jacob doesn't negotiate here. He's ridiculous. He says just this ridiculous amount. He says seven years. Traditionally, two years of wages would have been enough. Jacob is going seven years. So apparently, homegirl had it going on because not only this, Jacob would then be tricked and would serve another seven years. Fourteen years for Rachel. He's drawn to her. It's powerful for him. He's intoxicated with her love. And it says that his service of seven years in the beginning was only a few days. Because in Rachel, he saw the power to bring him out of the mundane that he was actually something, that he could be saved. And so he craves Rachel so much so that in verse 21, it says in a very vulgar and crass way, give her to me so that I may go with her. Just boom. It's an appetite now. He wants her. He's drawn. So what is it that we want whenever we want romance? Ernest Becker writes in The Denial of Death, he writes it really well. He says, the modern person still needed to feel heroic to know that his or her life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to merge himself with something higher, some self-absorbing meaning and trust and gratitude. And he no longer had God. How was he to do this? 
One of the first ways that occurred to him in his auto rank song was a romantic solution. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused on the one individual. In one word, the love object is God. Man reached for a vow when the worldview of the great religious community overseen by God died. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. And what Jacob has done is he put Rachel in the place of the Lord. Romance like this is like fire, but Terry Barton knew it. She knows it now. And Jacob is finding it out. And you can warm yourself by it, but in the wrong places, in the wrong context, in the wrong direction, it'll get out of control and it'll burn you down. And so what is it that we really want in a romantic relationship? We want to be wanted. We want intimacy. We want God. We want redemption and nothing less. So the question is, can we have that without intimacy? Without, without romance, I mean. Can we have it? In modern romance, although it is good, it is not everything. And you make romance into everything because you'll have an idol. You'll have a replacement God because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to replace God with romance. You see, romance is good to a poor master. And so how does the church help with this? You know, like I said, we live in a world that elevates romance to the top. It's everything. And so what do we do? Churches need to be good places to practice authentic friendship and community. So real and so deep that you can actually imagine a world in which your life is completely fulfilled being single without ever having to be in a romantic relationship. The churches can give the possibility of that happening. Churches can also give the possibility of the structures and the help that husband and wives need not to keep up expectations on their spouse but rather to live within reality, knowing that that person across from them is not their Christ. You see, the church can also be a refreshing place in an over-sexualized world, in which the world, you don't have to express yourself through your sexuality in order to be fulfilled. But you can pour out your life in service, in kindness, in goodness because you have friends on a mission to love and serve the world together. See, romance is powerful. But you make it everything and it will burn your world down. What about this pain of romance? Romance, you know it isn't easy. It hurts. Loneliness is painful. And in the backdrop of your overly romantic world, you know it. You really feel the sting of romance. You never feel more lonely whenever you are the one you love, the one you love most is ignoring you. You never feel it really you're like you want to know what the loneliest feeling is in the world. Now I'm a married man, so whenever my wife is angry at me, you can lay in the same bed and feel like you're in a different continent. 
And romance has that power. It has the power to pain deeply. You see, so we see that Jacob here, he, love makes him blind. You ever have, you know what love blind looks like? You know what it looks like? It's whenever your friend is into someone, and then you look at that person, and you're like, what in the world are they thinking? And then somehow they're always over at your house, and you feel like that they have to like come to the defense of this person that they love. They're always saying ridiculous things. Like, oh, he serves me, and he's so nice, and, and he, he rubs my feet. And you're like, yeah, they, what in the world? He is weird. He doesn't have a job. His breath smells. I, like, what are you into? Love blind makes you overlook all the realities of this person. And somehow this person is now all of a sudden Chris Evans from, from Captain America. And she's like swooning over him. And the friend is like, what in the world has happened to my friend? She has been taken over by some alien force. And that's the way you feel. And she's love blind. Notice that how this works with Jacob. He sees Rachel and he's like, oh, dang. And he never sees the damage that he is causing. Notice he hears what he wants to hear in verse 19. He says, I'll serve you for seven years. So at first, he's culturally deaf. Like, he has no idea what he's doing. He's like, seven years. Later, he's like, I'm going to let him out in two years. This is awesome. Seven years? Yeah, bro. Go ahead. I'll give you my daughter, sort of. You know, but then notice he hears what he wants to hear. Jacob hears what he wants to hear. Laban doesn't say yes. Laban doesn't guarantee him anything. You know what Laban does? Laban says, better that I give her to you than anybody else. He doesn't say yes. Jacob hears what he wants to hear. Oftentimes we hear what we want to hear with other with people that we're in love with. And we overlook things. And so he then also, uh, apparently during, you know, like a big party, like so it would have been about a week long, they gathered everybody, there's a lot of drinking, it's dark, there's no like electricity in the tent or anything like that. And so at night, the narrator's writing that he doesn't see anything, goes into the tent, completely love blind, drunk with love, ready for Rachel. And what happens? He wakes up. It's Leah. Oh no! What happened? You see, romance has the power in order to get our expectations way high and to completely let us down. We believe all the time that the person that we're going with, oh, this is Rachel, but in the end in the morning we wake up with Leah. We do it with so many things. Everything in our lives, we believe it's going to make us better, it's going to save us, but in the morning you always end up with Leah. You see, the pain of romance also makes us slaves. Jacob serves for 14 years for this love, for this romance. If all your life is oriented around your romantic life, then you're enslaved to it. You'll always be checking your dating profile, making sure that you uh, look the right way, that you've got the right side, with the right filter, and that you know you have the right description. You're always manipulating yourself to make yourself attractive to somebody in order that you can be in control of this romance. The opposite is true, too. The opposite is true. Imagine if you're always refusing to be in a relationship or avoiding it. Like, I'm never really going to be serious in a relationship. I don't want to exert any power over you. Do you know that your response to that is actually 
of showing that you're allowing romance to exert power over you. Do you know that? You're in control of it just by refusing it. Love can also make you hurt. To come back from Laban was a stinging rebuke. He's like, unlike in your country, Jacob, the older first. Remember, Jacob usurped the older's authority, the authority that the place of the older. So he has a stinging rebuke. See, Jacob then, he was fooled. Rachel is dehumanized. She's an object for him. And Leah was unloved, unnoticed. Nothing said much about her, about her feelings, about how she felt about the whole situation. She is not pursued. She's just an add-on. Which reminds us, I think, about the biggest thing that hurts us with, uh, with the pain of romance. Romance in our in our uh, consumption world, in our consumeristic world, can cause us to dehumanize others. We think about the about pornography. We think about those things. Those are dehumanizing. And what we do is we commodify also ourselves. So we look for the love partner, things that they can give to me, and then we turn that back on ourselves. And so what do we do? We start to manipulate and change ourselves in order that we are. We, we can be consumed. That I've got it going on. This person wants me. You see, we've treated ourselves no better than the labels on a box of cereal to be more appealing to little kids and their fancy. I want this one. It's got a toy in it. You know, like, it's the way it was for me as a kid. I just saw the boxes. I'm like, it's got a toy in it. I want that one. It could have tasted like sand, okay? But as long as it had a toy in it, see, that's what we do. We do strategic product placing. We put ourselves the best foot forward. And all we're doing is commodifying ourselves and dehumanizing ourselves. We also think about the way this is to be, uh, uh, we, we think of ourselves as products to be consumed rather than people to be loved. And this goes also in marriage relationships. Always performing for the other and always demanding the other performs for you. You see, if you put too much hope and trust in romance, you're going to be let down. Think about the way you treat other people. Always making them perform. Think about the way you look at yourself. Always say to yourself, you're not good enough. You're not lovely enough. You're not enough. Think about the way we treat our spouses when they fail. We have contempt. We have spite and bitterness. We make the other into a Christ. That this other person, if they just perform right, I will be saved. See, I think I have to run into this. If you put all your hope onto the love partner, that this person is going to elevate me to where I need to be. My wife and I have talked about this. You do that. You need to realize that someday... Bury your God. My wife and I have to come to terms with the fact that one of us will bury the others. If I put all my hope, all my pleasure, all my joy, my everything into my wife, there's a good chance I will have to bury her. 
Maybe you can't be the Christ for your spouse. And so what do we need? What do we need is we need a true rom romance. The romance our heart really desires and needs and we're created for. We need the intimacy of being known and loved by God. And we need to drill that deep down into our heart so that it is the most satisfying flavor and satisfaction on our tongues and on our lips and in our heart. What does it feel like? What is true romance like? And I can only explain it as, as that feeling of the first fall wind after a long day of summer. And you smell the pine and you know it's coming. Makes your heart leap. In a lot of ways, that's what love is like. We were meant to be lovers. We were created by the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to share that love. And here, Leah is unloved, unnoticed, unwanted. And what Jacob wanted and what his family needs is a redeeming love to lift them out of the pain and misery of sin. It made a mess. Terrible this time. And the Lord would do it through Leah. Because we would know in her story that through her, through the person of Judah, would come one who would be God's romance for his people. His undying, always and forever love. He has set his love on a people, and nothing will stop him. This is the romance your heart needs, and my heart needs. It is the romance that can change us. It is the steadfast and unchanging love of the Lord that makes us crumble. Notice how it changes Leah. She's unloved, but it says this, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. And so what does he do? He opens her womb, and notice this is a process for her and how it changes her. Notice at first, it says, oh, the Lord has seen, seen me. Therefore, I will name this child Reuben, which means see me. It is as if she is saying to her husband Jacob, Don't you see me? Can you see me? Am I lovable now? Do you want me now? Not then. Her heart isn't satisfied. And so then she has another child, and his name is Simeon, which means hear me. It is as if Leah is saying to her husband, Can you hear me now? Can you hear that I am unloved? Can you hear that I am unwanted? Do you even notice me? Do you even notice the sound of my voice? Romance wasn't doing it then. Then the next child, his name is Levi, and she's like, Now, three sons. Now he's got to attach to me or to cling to me. You cling to me, Jacob. But he loved Rachel. And in the end, she has another child. And his name is Judah. And in a strange way, his name says, is praise the Lord. It is no longer romance, what romance can do for me. She just praises the Lord. And it says, and it ends with this kind of abruptly. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Stop. You see, she became supremely and in the 
way the author wants it, that she is satisfied to praise the Lord rather than have the attention that romance can give her. She is not saved by romance, but rather she is saved by the Lord. She's loved by the Lord. She is noticed by the Lord. She has the intimacy and romance that her heart needs. And what is that? That is the true and divine romance. And where do we know, where do we see God's love, God's love for the unwanted, the unloved, come? We see it on the cross when we see the true romance come into full flower in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God's love made visible in, the per- in Jesus. And we see Him on the cross, that He became unwanted, He became unloved, so that we would know that we are wanted and that we are loved. He became unchosen and forgotten. There is only one romance your heart needs, and that is the romance of the God of the universe loving you, sacrificing for you. God's love is shown in Jesus. He became unwanted and unloved to get us. He was forsaken so we could be forgiven. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He experienced wrath so that we can experience love. And when we get that love, the love of the cross, the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are lifted out of the sadness of the mundane because you get what your heart most desperately needs, and that's what Leah got when she had God see. You see, when we see God and His love for us in Jesus Christ on the cross, we get it in full, clear, technicolor vision. And we will say with George Herbert, the poet, Thou art my loveliness, my life, my light, beauty alone to me. And when you get that at the heart, that's the romance you need. And it is powerful enough to change you. That is what we need. That's the true romance, the divine romance, being seen by God. Mighty and gracious God, when you meet with us now in your supper, that we would know your love, your love supreme, that it is beyond anything we can just say or even put into words, but we must sing it we must taste it. We must declare it. We must live it. I pray that we would experience your love through this supper. That you have given yourself so that we may be transformed and show your love that transforms the world. It is in Christ's name.